you found the Digging Oak Island podcast, a podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. If you've been listening to and enjoying our show here, please consider helping out the show by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. All right, before we begin, got some stuff to take care of. I want to thank Stephen and Jeffrey for joining our Patreon last week. Don't forget, guys, as patrons, you can come and join us for a live discussion in the post section of the Patreon page during the uh, U.S. airing of each new episode of The Curse of Oak Island. Got to say U.S. because it doesn't air at the same time, the same day everywhere. Uh, also, I've begun turning the rest of the post section of that Patreon page into something of my own little Oak Island blog putting in new content, uh, you know, whenever I get a chance, mostly some of my past research and the history of the dig. Again, thank you, Jeffrey and Stephen. I can't tell you how much your support means to me, and it really is great to have you as part of the Digging Oak Island family. Thank you so much. One more thing before we get started. Last week's podcast, I read a message from a patron whose handle or whatever name you have on the site is JC1166. I said at the time... I didn't know if this was a he or a she, and honestly, Dave, I should have known better. Uh, Because it was our friend Jen who lives out by Pittsburgh and is a fellow Pirates fan. Sorry, Jen. Won't let it happen again. Thank you for being a patron, of course, and let's go Bucks. Uh, All right, let's go to this week's emails and start with a short one from a new patron, the aforementioned Jeffrey. At least I think it's the same Jeffrey, who writes simply, I guess they've given up on trying to find the hatch. Uh... Jeff, I would never say never with this thing. You know, Um, they are clearly devoted to the work of Zena Halpern. There's no two ways about that. And certainly you can say that with without hesitation about Rick Lagina. And I can guarantee you that we haven't seen the last of this theory on the show. I promise you it will be back. um, If certainly if Rick has anything to say about it, I don't know about finding the hatch, that one thing they were looking for and how it. You know, the translation and the stuff that we we're talking about, uh, we might not see that again. But as I've mentioned a lot on this show, I, I, I didn't I didn't put a lot of stock into that. So I'm not really disappointed if they've decided at some point during that search to move on. Um, let's go now to Don, who writes, Hi, Dave. I was very glad to find your podcast a few seasons ago. It has helped scratch that itch for more Oak Island content, and now I listen every week. Great to have you as a listener, Don. Thank you so, so much. Uh, Regarding your last show of listener questions and comments regarding the use of the hammer grab, I think the answer is fairly straightforward. Both Rick and Marty have repeatedly said that they are looking for the one thing, one solid, definitive piece of evidence of treasure in the money pit. Put gold in my hand, as Marty says. There is no doubt in my mind that if they were to find the one thing in the claws of the hammer grab, that they would quickly greenlight the big dig and do a massive excavation of the entire area. While destructive, the hammer grab and the casings allow them to extract large amounts of material from depth for analysis without the enormous expense of a big dig, which is tough to justify without any actual evidence of treasure. 100% right. Uh, Plus, the chances of finding anything in a six-inch borehole is infinitely small. Just my two cents. Love the podcast. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Don. Uh, And thank you. I think you're absolutely correct, Don. I mean, add to that the history of flooding, huge collapses in the money pit. You know, the fact is, if there ever was a vault, it would be hard to believe that it's still intact. 
And if it was simply a buried treasure chest, I mean, who knows what state it could be in by now, having been, you know, and same with the vault, having been flooded, crushed, drilled, you know, whatever else. With all the all the movement of earth and water from years of digging and just the natural way of things down there, chances are whatever was there is now spread out and won't be found in just one spot. And, and honestly, really, I was being a little tongue-in-cheek there when I was saying that. I mean, not entirely. Uh, it does seem like a destructive way of doing things, but... What it gets down to is I think the use of the hammer grab is in kind of an insight into what the team thinks is really happening down there because they if they really did think they were going to find a, you know, a, a room underground with the Ark of the Covenant or the original manuscripts of William Shakespeare, I, I just can't imagine that this would be the technique they would use, you know. Anyway, great email, my friend. Time to hear from Ryan who writes, Dave, after listening to comments last week, I realized I came across a little too harsh in mine. Maybe I'm frustrated, but I can't give up now after years of following the hunt. I want to see what comes up now that cans are in the ground. The crew really seem to be closer than ever before, and I don't want the show or the podcast to end. I enjoy the whole story, no matter how cheesy, annoying, or repetitive some parts may be. It all adds to the legend. Overall, the show has been entertaining, and isn't that the goal of a TV show like this? We're pretty lucky to be able to watch this whole story unfold. I mean, how many treasure hunters have allowed millions of people to follow their hunt? Well, none, especially at this level of detail. So a big thank you to the Fellowship. Plus, it's so much fun to speculate on all this. Once they decide it's over, then it's over, and I'll miss all of it. I also wanted to say I really appreciate your engagement with the listeners. I think we all echo our appreciation for the show because of your willingness to include us and entertain all these different theories and opinions. The audience is smart, funny, and engaging. The podcast format and discussion seem to come natural for you. Thank you, sir. So thank you to the listeners, and frankly, it's all just kind of fun. Uh, cheers, and here's hoping we have some serious top pocket finds in the weeks ahead. Ryan. Uh, Ryan, first of all, you're 100% right about the audience. Uh, I cannot believe how engaging and how incredibly intelligent and learned they are on so many things. I mean, I've got people in the audience who can answer questions that I, I just can't even get anywhere near science questions and history questions. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Um, and yeah, come over to the Patreon during the discussions and you'll see how funny they can be. I, I got to tell you with the rest of the email, you really nailed it there. Um, you know, uh, let me give you some some a little bit about myself. Uh, <laughs> I can't tell you how many times over the years now doing this podcast that I've listened back to myself, uh, you know, afterwards and and started thinking, my God, Dave, it sounds like you hate this show. It's hard not to focus on the negative sometimes. And with a podcast like this, those are the things that tend to be more um, discussion points, you know, the things that I don't agree with or maybe the things that we don't fully understand. Those are the obvious talking points. And also, let's face it, if I just spent 40 minutes a week telling you all how wonderful I thought everything was in the show, this podcast would be kind of boring, you know, <laughs> and I wouldn't really want to do it because what would be the point? I don't have anything to say. The whole reason why I'm here is because I want to sort of add things to you for you, for the for the for the viewing experience. When it comes to the show, when it comes to doing these reviews of the show, I want to add things for your experience, maybe give you some background, maybe tell you where things might not be right. And it tends to, you know, lean towards sounding negative when really that isn't always what I'm or hardly ever what I'm trying to say. The great stuff, Ryan. Sometimes it just needs to be said how much all of us here really love Oak Island and really do like this show a lot. I mean, honestly, that wasn't true, I wouldn't be making this podcast, and you all wouldn't be listening to a Oak Island podcast. 
Let's go now to Mike, who writes, Another fact I remembered reading when you mentioned how you thought the show would move forward uh, towards history than a treasure hunt in the future. One story suggested was about um, Samuel Ball, and then Mike sent me a statistic about the makeup of thousands of former slaves who came to Nova Scotia after the Revolution, um, how many were um, promised resettlement by the Crown, how many were free, how many were uh, former soldiers, how many were you know came with uh, as slaves of other white loyalists. Um, it's an interesting stat, Mike. You didn't source it here, so I, I, but it seems I I kind of cross reference it. It seemed to be pretty correct, and and it does reiterate how amazing a person. Samuel Ball really was. And just to be clear, the treasure hunt can and should go on and remain the central focus of the show. I don't want that to sound like that's I'm saying it shouldn't. My only point was instead of repeating a lot of information, which is probably the one thing that frustrates viewers the most, and also trying to make it appear so it it so there seems to be a major find in every episode, whether those finds are usually just pieces of wood or maybe another ox shoe, instead of those kind of things. Maybe what we can do is have some more discussion on theorists, some more backstory on the history of Oak Island and the characters that have been part of this story, or even on the dig itself, you know, those kinds of things. If they need to fill 20 plus episodes a year and there wasn't much found, uh, I'm just saying that there's a better way, I think, to do that. And there's so much information here and we could really, you know, we can really do that. Um, Anyway. That's that's kind of where I was going last week. Uh, uh, and I'm also saying from what I know of the fans of this show, these things that I'm talking about, I think would be more welcome than ox shoes and trying to make it sound like it came from a Templar ox. <laughs> you know? uh, but you get my point. Thanks, Mike. Great stuff. Staying on the same topic here, let's go now to another patron. Here is our friend Paul who writes, Dave, your latest podcast episode was excellent. You can make your show so interesting and impactful even without an Oak Island show this past week. Thank you, sir. The ending of your podcast with your soapbox insights and perspective was spot on. I know you are a very, very respectful person of the Oak Island show and your listeners. This goes a long way with your fan base. Your wake-up call to the Oak Island show, I am hopeful, will fall upon their ears and marketing mindset. Let's hope so. As always, appreciate all you offer and provide to your listeners and fans. Keep up the great work. Thank you very much, Paul, an avid listener and dedicated Patreon. Paul, first, thank you for your generosity being part of the Patreon, and um, thank you for your kind words there. Listen, the bottom line is this. I want the show to continue. I mean, I want them to solve the mystery more. Don't get me wrong. But if I, that can't happen, I want this show to go on. It's just that I'm starting to hear kind of the same complaints and the same issues with many what I would call really devoted fans. I mean, some of who are turning the show off now uh, because of these things that I talked about at the end of our last podcast. I know I've said this a lot, but my wife is the best example I have. They're by my side week after week for eight seasons. And now she gets up and takes a shower at 9 p.m. on Tuesdays and says, come and get me if they find anything. If that trend, when I th- and I do think it is a trend, although there's no way for me to, to tell you that for sure, but if that trend doesn't reverse, I think the show will start to fade a bit in the ratings, and, and that's not good for us who want it to keep going on. And uh, just so you don't think my wife is an outlier out there, let's turn now to our old friend Matt in Pennsylvania, who missed the deadline for last week's report card show. Matt, you're late. Uh, and so we got his thoughts here this week. He writes... How's it going, Dave? Excellent job. So wait, before I get into Matt's thing here, let me just remind you guys of or tell you guys how I do this listener email thing and how my week kind of goes. Monday, I look at your emails. 
I start going through notes for them. I start writing out the, how, how I'm going to answer all of these things. And on Tuesday, I start to really sort of lock all of that down in Tuesday afternoon. So if you don't have your email in by like noonish on Tuesday and even like even when I wake up on Tuesday, chances are I'm not going to get it in this show because I've already kind of shaped it out. If that makes sense, I mean sometimes I can depending on where I am in the in the in the uh, preparation stage. But once Tuesday night hits, then for the next 24 hours, it's all all I'm doing is putting in this, you know, my notes and talking about the show and recording that part of the show. So. Just so you know. Anyway, Mike uh, Matt writes, excuse me, how's it going, Dave? Excellent job as always on the podcast. I've really been enjoying the season. Before I give you my feelings on season nine of The Curse of Oak Island, I want to make it very clear that the show itself continues to be my favorite hour of television each week. I never miss an episode and usually watch it again when it is replayed with extra information. This season, however, has been tough to get through. There have not been many exciting finds, and it seems like most of the narratives seem manufactured or overblown. Specifically, I want to address a couple of issues with recent finds in the money pit. The narrator continues to state that the Fellowship found gold artifacts in the money pit. This is not accurate. The Fellowship found iron artifacts in the money pit. These pieces of metal, describing them as artifacts is very generous, are over 90% pure iron. The remaining 10% includes a number of impurities and various elements. Based on my memory of the episode, the amount of gold in each artifact is somewhere under half of a percent. My conclusion is simple. Iron created in the 19th century was never pure and contained small amounts of other types of metals. Without electron microscopes or modern laboratory equipment, there would be no way to find the gold in the metal. There is not enough gold to be worth anything. And it seems like a reach to say these finds prove that gold is in the money pit. I know nothing about how iron was smelt in the past, so take this opinion with a grain of salt. In regards to the silver and gold found in the water in the money pit, I read recently that all of the ocean water around the globe contains traces of these metals in one form or another. I have no idea what the ratio is, but perhaps there is just ocean water trickling into the money pit through various crevices, cracks, or small caverns under the island, not flood tunnels. If a scientist assumed that the gold and silver in the money pit came from the water that was stagnant and not connected to the ocean, they would have to assume that there was a large amount of treasure in the pit. If the ratio of gold in the water was from a smaller volume of water, a researcher could even conclude that there was a dump truck full of silver or gold found somewhere underground. Maybe I'm way off the mark here, but maybe the gold and silver found in the money pit is the same as the gold and silver found in ocean water throughout the Atlantic. Producers never really gave us a comparison, to my knowledge, so I'm still a little unclear about it. Anyway, from the beginning, I have never thought there was treasure or really anything buried in the money pit never made sense to me and still doesn't. That being said, I still love the show and the podcast and continue watching. I'm rooting for these guys, but I think everyone will come out empty handed in the end. Thanks, my man, Matt from Havertown, PA. Matt, um, always great to hear from you. I'm not an expert on these tests either. They did show some of that information. Some of the sort of freshwater stuff that was there, I believe the water was fresh, didn't uh, the, the, the swamp doctor taste it at one point and that kind of stuff. And and, and what they showed, um, I'm not really clear on, I can't remember exactly what it was, but I did speak to Dr. Matt Lukeman, the guy who did these tests earlier in the year, and he led me to believe that these levels were indeed not natural. Um, this is his business and not mine. So I really can't add on to that. You know, as far as the gold content and the piece of what looks like scrap metal. Yeah, I think from the beginning I've been with you on this one. Uh, we get that artifact 
and then we get these tests. But if this is a treasure, how did the gold, if it's from a treasure, how, why is it now inside this? I, I mean, we're going to talk about it more in the episode here today. There's another one of these that's coming. Um, it just seems like there's a big slice of info in this whole storyline of this gold inside these metal pieces that we just haven't been given yet, you know? Anyway, great stuff, Matt. Uh, let's go to our friend now, John, who writes, Hi, Dave. I think you are being too critical, dismissive with regard to the bail seal by leaning towards it having been randomly washed ashore from a shipwreck. There is more evidence that the seal was on the island by design rather than deposited there by the tide. Circumstantial evidence suggests that the seal has a strong relationship to the island through possible relationship to the lead cross and coconut core, rather than the odds that it was randomly washed ashore by coincidence to the lead cross and core. Also, between the trade winds and the Gulf Stream, it seems more likely to be washed up on a European shore than on Oak Island, unless, of course, the ill-fated ship was in close proximity to the island. In addition, regardless of the availability of coconut court today, how common would it have been in the vicinity of Oak Island hundreds of years ago, and for what purpose? Used as a filter on the box drains is more plausible than it was by coincidence that it happened to wash ashore over the drains. Now, let me stop here. John, um, coconut fiber was used throughout the maritime industries. It was almost ubiquitous for centuries, and it was used in the cargo holds of ships to keep things from rolling around down there. Kind of like how you pack, a, a, you know, a, how, you, how you put packing peanuts into a box to keep stuff from moving around too much. Um, truth be told, ships sailing in that area would likely have had coconut fiber on them because they were all carrying something back and forth from the, um, you know, from the from the Europe or from the colonies or wherever they were going. It, again, it was everywhere and it worked great because it lasted forever. So the idea of it washing up really uh, anywhere is not all that outlandish, certainly far less outlandish, in my mind at least, than a secret mission by the Knights Templar. Um, and I guess whatever you think the fibers might have been used for by them, I don't know. Um, uh, sorry, my friend, we're, I think we're going to have to agree to disagree on this one. Uh, anyway, John continues, regarding the destructiveness of the grab, the Fellowship that Dig are also aware of the same. For example, having hastily suggested a destructive approach to the treasure dig in Texas, Rick Lagina corrected himself as follows, quote, I'm contradicting what I have always purported to believe on Oak Island. You don't want to damage anything. Take your time. And that's from Beyond Oak Island, season two, episode six. One possibility occurs to me if they can locate the tunnels, if they can be bolstered up or restored, the current dig could provide a great tourist attraction by installing an elevator. Wow. With the steel cans left in situ. I generally try to brief... To be brief, so apologies for such a long email. Great stuff, John. Okay, um, John is fantastic email. I guess my only question is, how would they find the tunnels using this can and hammer grab method? I don't see how that works out. Um, I'm not sure how that works. And and I know what I that I and I know I've said this already, but I think I'm being if I'm being serious that they are using the hammer grab because they don't think anything could still be intact down there. You know. Um, they are at best going to find traces of something and then try something with a more surgical approach, I would imagine, if they do find something down there. Um, anyway, that's just kind of my thought. Thank you, John, so much. Um, I love when you guys challenge me. on. I mean, let's face it, I'm no more an expert on these subjects than any of you listeners. And let's go now to Steve to finish off the email section today. He writes, hi, Dave. Um, first of all, love the show and I'm still watching and continue to. I started watching in season four or five, so I took your advice and went back and watched season one. 
It's pretty stunning how much different the operation is now. There are a couple of laugh-out-loud moments. 30 minutes into the very first episode ever, Marty expresses frustration about how long the search is taking. <laughs> Later in the same episode, Alex Lagina arrives on the island for the first time and remarks, it seems like a nice place to spend a couple of months, but he wouldn't want to spend his life there. <laughs> Watching season one also helped me figure out where all the buttons that Gary has found came from. They are apparently from Rick's shirt in season one, given it's often left open all the way down to his navel. A big aha for me, though, was really better appreciating all the work and money that went into the search over the last hundred plus years, especially given that no one really found anything and they all stopped because they ran out of money. In season one, Marty questions whether they should go forward or not. Given the cost of drilling another hole, which is probably at most tens of thousands of dollars, they now spend millions without even really discussing it on screen. The only thing that ha- that uh, have previous searchers didn't is TV viewers and TV money. It appears they have found the treasure, and it is us. Thanks for the great show, Steve. Uh, great email, Steve. I am forever suggesting people go back and watch the first couple of seasons. It's really stunning how different it all is. It really is how it comes to this, and 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 I. And I take a very um, positive approach with this with, rather than a cynical one, um, rather than speculating on how the success of the show might be adversely affecting the hunt. I think as fans of Oak Island, we should be realizing just how much our love for this show, like our devotion and our watching it all the time, has brought Oak Island the single best funded and most capable search in the 225 year history of this search for literally everyone before them. The things we see now would never have been possible, even their own equivalent. Uh, This is the first time someone with truly unlimited funds has tackled this mystery, and it's because of the show, and more importantly, it's because of the show's popularity and its fans. And by watching season one again, you get the greatest evidence of the fact that this was by no means a foregone conclusion, that we would be where we are now. I'm fairly certain if we all didn't fall in love with this show as much as we have, Marty Lagina and Craig Tester would never have been willing to come anywhere close to funding what we have seen brought to this search over these last nine years. We need to appreciate that. Stephen, you helped remind us of all that. Great stuff, my friend. If you have any questions or comments that you would like here discussed on a uh, future podcast, just send me an email, diggingoakisland at gmail.com. Time now to talk about Season 9, Episode 16 of The Curse of Oak Island called Gold Diggers. Now, the bulk of the show revolves around the subject of the money pit, but there are a couple of other stops, so let's talk about them first. We start by heading out to the swamp where we see the guys continuing their ground-penetrating radar scans they started last week. They are looking for evidence of where the new stone path they found earlier this year is actually heading. This is the stone path that caused the work stoppage because they also found um, First Nations artifacts and Mi'kmaq people there. Um, the narrator tells us that they are using a device called the OKM Gepard GPR 3D Scanner. And leave it to my friend Steve on the Patreon to give us this little piece of info. He said, that's a $20,000 rig right there. <laughs> Again, we are talking about how the History Channel is finally brought to Oak Island, the endless funds that every treasure hunter that ever came before these guys wish they had. And here's another example. Truth be told, Steve, though, don't you think they bothered to tell us exactly what make and model this is because the company that gave this or lent this to them uh, asked them to? (laughs) Sure, you can have it. Just make sure you tell the world 
at uh, what it is so they can go to our website and buy their very own GPR, OKM, GIP, whatever it was, $20,000 ground penetrating radar scanner. Anyway, I'm getting off topic here. Uh, the guys do the scan, and then later in the show, Steve Guptel uh, plots it into his little survey of the island, and he thinks it's pretty clear that the path is not leading to the money pit, as they were, I think, sort of hopefully speculating earlier this year. But instead of the pine, instead it's leading towards this pine tar kiln found on Lot 15, and that's just to the west of the money pit area. There was an interesting piece of narration here that made me laugh a little bit. Uh, a little background first. Uh, the team searched over here because in, initially because Fred Nolan had written the word tunnel entrance on a map of his, of, you know, of his own making right on this spot. So when the narration, so then they, they started excavating over there and found instead was a pine tar kiln. So when the narration says something like, uh, although the team has yet to find evidence of why Fred believed there was a tunnel entrance at this feature... I just kind of had to laugh a little bit. But, I mean, isn't it obvious <laughs> why they haven't found evidence? Because Fred wasn't right. I mean, he saw something and he assumed what it was and he got that assumption wrong. I mean, it's human error. He didn't excavate it himself. So he just saw what they saw and, and, and determined the wrong thing. I mean, I think we already ascertained that last year. But that was just a funny little way of putting it. Anyway, um, the disappointment of finding of this finding wasn't really mentioned on the show, but it had to be something of a letdown, I think, and not the first one or the last one for this show. I mean, if memory serves, the team was hoping that this was a new path or you know, that led to a wharf and then or whatever they were calling it and then was heading straight to the money pit. But now we know it's not. Instead, it's heading to this pine tar kiln, which makes all the sense in the world if you're thinking about you know what a pine tar kill is. You're making pine tar and you're bringing it out to a boat. So if you have heavy pine tar buckets, you need something to take it out there to, right? Um, now, when I say disappointing, right, uh, I mean disappointing for the fellowship, for the Laginas and their theories, but not at all disappointing for our friend Gordon Fader and uh, Joy Steele, his partner, his late partner, because this little idea certainly fits rather nicely into their theory, the one often mentioned in the, uh, you know, the often mentioned theory from their book, The Oak Island Mystery Solved. Later on, the team heads out to lot 15 and we see Gary Drayton metal detecting the area with David Frenetti. Now, clearly Gary had metal detected before here. I want you guys to see that that's what those little flags are. It means he's gone through it already, just hasn't had time to come back with the, uh, with the camera crew yet. So for people who think they're not doing enough, they're obviously doing a lot of metal detecting off camera. Finds a couple old pieces of iron, uh, including maybe a small hammerhead, but there wasn't much, if any, follow-up to these items. So I think we can conclude at this point that there really wasn't much to them. All right, I, I am really kind of flying through this, and that's why I'm fumbling over some of these words. Got to try to slow down a little bit, but I uh, have less time this week because the wife is away on business and it's just me and the kid here. So anyway, let's get right back in. Time to discuss the work over in the money pit. Now, it was a rough day for all involved over there for sure. So uh, let's let's talk about it. They're still working on this very first case on that they uh, called TF1. And we hear a lot of talk about how this could be going right into the original money pit. And I, I needed the patrons to remind me why that is. I, I couldn't I couldn't remember why they were concluding that. And, how, you know, how did we get from the point where this was, uh, you know, a spot where we were, 
looking and the maybe a searcher shaft to being the original Money Pit. So let me remind you, too, in case you forgot. Remember the boot found last week that came out of this can? The team dated it to the early 20th century and to the time of the treasure hunting group called the Old Gold Salvage and Wrecking Company, my favorite name of treasure companies on the island. Uh, Most famous, this company was, for having a young Franklin Delano Roosevelt among its investors. FDR's men at least thought they were digging onto the site of the original money pit. So you can see why the fellowship might think that way now, right? That that's where they are. Now, remember, the old gold salvage and wrecking company did not find anything. So they never actually confirmed that this was indeed the money pit. But they were searching in the era before the location of the money pit was truly lost forever. So you could see the logic in all this. As the hammer grab pulls stuff up, Gary is metal detecting the spoils out of these grabs. He pulls out a rounded part of a what looked like a wooden pole or maybe it was a peg of some kind. Hard to be sure since we didn't really see either end of it because it was broken, obviously, on both sides. He also finds what he calls a big iron fastener. Not going to do the, uh, the, the, the accent for you guys, but it looked like a spike or a nail. Uh, Laird Niven looks at it and he concludes also that it was indeed hand forged and therefore it's got to be rather old. Now, they didn't really give us a date on that, but there you go. Throughout the show, we see some more artifacts being found that come from these spoils, including some metal pieces that came out of the wash plant. That's that big thing that sifts through everything. We'll talk about more, talk more about them in just a bit. But also, we see Jack Begley and Alex Lagina and a surveyor named Eric Valois over at the uh, wash table, and they pull out two, pull out a piece of what looks like concrete. Actually, pull out two of them, I think. And Dr. Ian Spooner comes over and agrees with this assessment that it does look like concrete. But not before Jack gives us a brand new nickname, Spoon Dog. I still like Swamp Doctor better, but because it, it sounds like a comic book villain, right? The Swamp Doctor. But Spoon Dog is also fun. So we can go with that for today. Uh, now back to those metal pieces from the wash plant. Later in the show, Marty brings them to the archaeology trailer for Kelly Barassa and Joan Barker to have a look and put them through their XRF machine. That's the one that tells them the elemental makeup of the metal. The results show trace amounts of gold, like a, a few other artifacts found earlier this year. Still, after a few of these, we get, and we mentioned this before, we get little information about what these pieces actually are and why they have gold in them. We get the chemical makeup, but are we really concluding that it's evidence of treasure? It's, I, I don't see the, I, I, I don't think they've taken that next step to really conclude that. That's, that's kind of, I don't think it's not. I just don't know. And, and I, I don't know. That's kind of how I feel. I agree with our listener on that one. Now, let's go back to the dig. Um, at about 140 feet, I think the last measurement she said was 137, but it, so it might be a little bit later, uh, Vanessa Lucido tells the team that the hammer grab is not able to grab whatever is actually down there. It's just sort of scraping on something. Like whatever it is, it's just too heavy for it to pull it out. So they switch the grabber and they try again, but also with no success. So later on, the experts sort of gather around and give the team what was really bad news, that this is bedrock which means essentially no money pit. Uh, Ginger, during the Patreon discussion, asked, can they put a camera on the end of the hammer grab and go look at what he's trying to pick up but can't raise because it's too heavy? And that is a great question. Why is that not possible? Why can't we get a look down there? 
I, I would love to be able to see that. Maybe it'll show us nothing. Maybe they did. I mean, the, the best case scenario is maybe they did do such a thing, and then that was part of their conclusion. But it does seem kind of strange that we just say, oh, well, it's bedrock. At least that's what it feels like on the end of this thing, which nobody's actually feeling, right? <laughs> um, so, I, I mean, I, I just don't know. I, I wish they could do that. All in all, though, this had to be tough for the team to hear. I mean, the narrator even called it later on a devastating setback. And it really was. I mean, even for the viewers, we went from being on maybe on the money pit to coming up empty. I mean, just empty. It really was difficult for team and viewer alike, I got to say. And on the bright side, though, we have a few more episodes left and supposedly three more caissons to go. Now, somebody also on the Patreon, I think it was Steve again. Let me just get exactly what he wrote here. He wrote, with six to eight episodes left in the season, and this year, no way they're getting three other cans into the ground before winter. It does lead you to believe that maybe they don't get all three in there, because it took them three episodes to get this one in, so it makes sense. Or maybe, Steve, they find it in one of those cans, in one of the first cans you see there. Who knows? Let's try to remain optimistic. All right, that's it for this episode of the Diggin' Oak Island podcast. Shameless plug time. Don't forget, every Wednesday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m., tune into WDVR-FM. You'll find me hosting a radio show called the Bourbon Street Bistro from 2 to 4 p.m., where we play the music of New Orleans. And then from 4 to 5 p.m., I host a show called Island Vibes, where I play music with a little kind of tropical feel to it. You can listen in New Jersey and Pennsylvania at 89.7 FM, or you can simply go to WDVRFM.org or just tell Alexa to turn on WDVR. Uh, also, don't forget to do another podcast called Sit Downs and Sessions. We had a great two-part discussion with uh, uh, ufologist-in-chief around here, Bill Burns, and then we just uh, did a total 180 and talked to um, incredible acoustic guitar player Beppe Gambetta on our last show. It's just me, my friend Chris. We talk about subjects we want to talk about. We interview people we find interesting regardless of what it is. It's just sort of two guys at a pub and enjoying our uh, enjoying some conversation, so you can listen to sit-downs and sessions anywhere you get your podcasts. Don't forget, you can really help out the show by becoming a patron. If you think the show's worth five bucks a month, then head over to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. And also, if you want to help out in another way, you can uh, leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. A big thank you to everyone who's done that already. I really do appreciate it. And don't forget, if you have any questions or comments for me, Send them directly to uh, to me at via email at diggingoakisland at gmail.com. Just keep in mind, if you do send me the email or a direct message on social media, I may just answer it here on the podcast. So don't forget, um, if you don't want it read, just make a note of that for me and I'll do my best to answer you. And speaking of social media, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. We are at Digging Oak Island. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.